What a world we live in now. Welcome to East Lake Online, everybody. My name's Brent, and uh, I am here in the mostly empty Uptown Theater, and uh, it's 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. We're so glad that you're tuning in from wherever it is that you're tuning in from, probably from a, a couch or a living room or whatever. Thanks for gathering the family together and turning this thing on and trying to create some semblance of routine and, and rhythm and normalcy uh, in this time of absolutely the opposite. We're so glad that uh, you could be a part of this and that uh, we can do church somewhat together in this community. We are on part five of a series that we started a while back um, called Now What? Uh, A series uh, that has been kind of focusing on one of the more memorable of Jesus's teachings, even if you're not like particularly religious, you, as I've gone through some of these things, you've probably familiarized or, or been familiar with some of the, the verses or thoughts or concepts that have come up, even if you're not really a church person. Uh, the idea of the blessed are, the blessed are, the blessed are, the Beatitudes portion, you've probably heard that before. And the idea of a church being supposed to be salt and light into the world, you've probably heard that before. The idea of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute, you've probably heard that one before. The idea of if you look lustfully at a woman, you should cut out your eyes. That one's really popular, so you've probably heard that one before. These and so many more show up in this one small section uh, of what we have known as the New Testament, and it's uh, specifically in the very beginning. Four testimonies from four different individuals about the life and the teaching of Jesus, known as the four Gospels, uh, and one of them written by a guy named Matthew, uh, one of uh, his disciples who took it upon himself, probably 20 or 30 years or 40 years or whatever, after the fact, um, to be able to say, hey, I have had some unique experiences. Here's kind of my memoir on the life and the teaching. The things that I remember most about what Jesus talked about, and it wasn't written down as a diary version. He's very structured, as we've said before. If you're a structured individual, you probably love Matthew. Um, he goes through the nine Beatitudes, the six things that you've heard, but now I'm telling you this, and the three spiritual practices. Very delineated in that way, but essentially the idea being that if you want to learn what it would look like to live in the way of Jesus, if you want to learn what it would look like to do things the way that Jesus did them, if that's part of kind of now, I, I, he was more than, than a teacher, he's something to kind of base our life on, you would be hard-pressed to find a better place to start uh, than and some of the teaching discourses that Matthew talks about, specifically uh, the Sermon on the Mount in chapters five through chapter seven of Matthew. And the reason that we're looking at them now, um, because this wasn't really a topic that I had intended to in my kind of long-term planning of series we'll probably do in 2020, it wasn't really on there. But once this whole thing started crashing and, and our world started changing, I, I asked myself the question, what now, how do we Uh, what are we going to view differently? Like now the checkout experience uh, at a coffee shop is very different. The when, when we go back to how restaurants are going to be, it's all going to be a little bit different. Like there's going to be a new normal in some of these things that we're trying to figure these things out. And I wondered if we, if this was so central to the teaching of Jesus, would we read this any differently? Would, would things stand out? Would things that previously seemed sort of impossible and kind of out there or whatever now make themselves a little bit more viable or would we be, be uh, more repelled by certain things and more attracted to certain things? What would that change? What, how would this thing be any different? And it's an important question to ask because as we uh, are coming uh, towards hopefully, you know, quote unquote, the end of this quarantine and sort of looking towards the future and trying to reassemble some semblance of normalcy, um, there are going to be some things about us going going, all right, I want to learn and do things better. I want to take personal inventory. I've had all this time with my family. I've had all this time away from um, some of the, maybe some job stuff or whatever. And I want to go back a better person. And how do I make that sort of uh, transition well, not just go back to life as normal. I was, thought I was happy with it, but now I've got some perspective on it and I want things 
used to be a little bit differently uh, in this way. Would any of our new mindset shift on how we read the Jesus ethic? That's been the question uh, that has been kind of at the forefront of my mind. And that's exactly what this is. It was um, um, an ancient kind of way of talking. It was a, a wisdom text. It was essentially a particular vision of the quote unquote good life. If my, it's essentially any, any sort of person who had influence would deliver something along these lines. Aristotle had his, Plato had his. Um, if it would be their, their way of saying, hey, listen, if my personal authority, if, the, if you respect me and hold me in some sort of esteem in a certain way, um, if, and if my influence carries any weight with you, then trust me when I say that this is the best way to do life. And obviously, you're free to kind of take it or leave it, depending on how much you value that person, um, but you owe it to yourself to at least take a look at it. And so that's this is as well. Um, that's the perspective that we're going. So we've been going section by section, not necessarily verse by verse, um, just the length of time. I just didn't think it would be worth uh, a verse by verse thing. Um, but we've been, what we, I liken it to uh, driving through like Yellowstone National Park and slowing down every once in a while, rolling down the windows, taking a look at what's outside. Uh, that's essentially what we've been doing with this, kind of going through saying, that's kind of interesting. Let's stop here for a second, take a look at it and go from there. Last week, in the first part of chapter six, the obvious stopping point um, was uh, w- was clearly on this these three spiritual practices, and then this this um, specifically in the area of generosity and optics of generosity. Um, and then looking ahead to this week, I've, I've asked you at the end of every talk that we've been a part of the series, hey, this week, would you make it a part of your routine since really you're not doing anything anyways? Would you read through Matthew chapter five through seven, or at least read the chapter that we're going to be focusing on um, to kind of prepare ourselves for this so that as I'm talking about, it's not like maybe the first time you've heard it. And if you were doing that, then when you came to chapter six, last week's maybe obvious. This week, I think that it would be a very obvious one of, well, that seems super relevant and that probably changes how I view things. I bet, if you had to guess, I bet Brent is going to talk about X this week. And that X for this week would obviously be verse 25 and moving forward, which is him, Jesus, saying essentially to this crowd of, by the way, uh, low income, socioeconomic status. Um, these are the people who had the time and the availability to go follow him onto a mountaintop and kind of chase him around and, uh, and not a lot of wealth in those scenarios. They didn't have, you know, they weren't born into it. They didn't, they weren't in palaces. They weren't in leadership. They're just kind of there. And he looks at them and he says, don't be anxious about anything, right? Um, don't, why are you worrying about any of this? Don't be anxious about the things in your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Life is more than eating and being well-dressed. I mean, consider the birds and consider the lilies of the field. I mean, what better scenario of circumstances in life would it be to walk through a verse that says, hey, I don't think suck, but don't think about it, right? Don't have any anxiety. Don't consider the lilies of the field. Consider all of these other things. Consider these birds in, the, in this way. What better time to talk about life being more than stuff? Um, but here's the thing. We've talked about that passage before. In fact, the very first series that we ever did at Eastlake was uh, a series called Why Worry? And it was exactly on this passage. Almost 10 years ago in the Southridge High cafeteria, uh, the scenario was that my wife and I in London at the time, who was about two years old, moved back home, left a great job uh, and life in the big city and moved home to kind of start this church. We had a couple of friends. We're like, you know, we just think we want to do church a little bit differently and, and we're going to start in a school and, and, and really nobody knows anything about us. We didn't do a mailer. We didn't do anything. And we were like, who's going to show up? What are we going to do? I'm, I'm working uh, at a restaurant as like serving tables and bartending, doing all kinds of weird stuff. And then we thought, 
If we just, it's like that field of dreams mentality. If you build, build it, they'll come, right? And, and, you, and it's, so, it's so dumb looking back on how many times we did things the wrong way. Uh, and then like me, me walking through like this fear of, I don't know if I'm qualified to do this. Uh, and that still pertains. And so there, there's like those kind of pieces on this. And uh, honestly, it was, uh, it was me stepping up and going, hey, um, welcome. You, many of you don't know me. We're going to talk about fear and anxiety for a little bit because I feel like you need to hear about this, right? And the reality was, Brent probably is preaching about himself at this point. I'm just preaching from material that is real close to home, which by the way is true like 85% of the time anyway. So that's what we had done and continued to sort of do in this way. And the conclusion of that series, and if you read the text for yourself, essentially lands in verse 31 through 33 saying, therefore, don't be anxious about anything. And if this was a message that I was going to do this for you, it would, be, it would come down to this. Don't be anxious about anything. Uh, Gentiles or pagans or uh, the people who uh, like, you know, you don't want to be in this category. They seek after these things and your father knows you need them. Instead, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. And you sing, a, you know, hold hands, kumbaya moment. And we just go on from there and everything's great. And honestly, that would probably be enough right now. And if I did that series and if I concluded today's talk with that, uh, you would probably smile. You'd fill out a connect card uh, underneath this little, you know, logo thing. You'd say, dude, thanks, man. The message really spoke to me today. You'd close your computer and you'd get, get back to your COVID research right? I mean, that would essentially be how this would work and it would be fine. But instead, um, what I want to do is there's a passage that lands just before this that, um, that, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. If, um, it, it, it kind of, it's in the middle of two things and it kind of feels like one of these things is not like the other things. And if you were reading it on your own, and if you did that this week, you probably skipped right over this or thought, that's weird. I don't know. understand what that means. That's the one I kind of want to focus in on for a little bit of a challenge in our brief time together. I'd like to look into it uh, a little bit uh, further. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. Um, Last week, I mentioned three spiritual practices that uh, he thought you must get right, being generosity, prayer, and fasting, and the idea of doing these with a sense of wholeness. Not doing this just to signal to people um, that you're into these things. Don't 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 pray in the streets because, or, or you know, out loud at, at church or in the temple or the synagogue, so that people think, "Oh man, what a man of prayer!" or whatever. Don't give in such a way that you make a big old scene about it. Um, just do it. Why, why, why do we have to let people know how generous we are when it's when it's a fasting thing? Why why do you, why is it why do you make it this big idea? If people see it, what they're seeing should be the tip of the iceberg. There should be so much more underneath the surface that they're not seeing that. Inevitably, they might run into. I mean, obviously, we're recorded uh, of Jesus praying and Jesus fasting and, and Jesus being generous with people. Uh, but it, you got a sense, in the sen- uh, you got a sense that what we saw was such a limited scope of what actually took place that Matthew was like, I got to include this because I saw this repeatedly over and over again. And that would be a much better place to kind of move forward in terms of this. It would be a part of your whole identity that just, it just leaks, it just seeps from you and you can't avoid it. So with that in mind, with this idea of wholesomeness in mind, that, that uh, wisdom texts generally included uh, optics on how to be happy and how to be whole. And, and that's what he wants for each of us. And that's the way, what the way of Jesus is entailed. Then we jump into our passage for today. Verse uh, 19 through or sorry, this is the setup version. I, I mentioned that there's a couple things that kind of set up the context for what we're going to talk about. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust uh, disfigure and where thieves can break in and steal. So again, finances are part of this. We, he just got done talking about giving and, and all of that and money. Um, and, and he's going to dive right back into it in this way. 
way. And I know you're like, dude, this is a weird time to be talking about money in church. I understand. Settle down. It'd be all right. Rather lay up for your treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust cannot disfigure, where thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there also will be your heart, which is like one of like the most brilliant, once you hear it and, and you really think about it, you realize the, um, the translation that it actually takes into effect in religious scenarios, but also in secular non-religious scenarios of how true this is for so many people. Uh, another way of putting that is whatever people value is who they truly are. Like, don't tell me, don't tell me what you value. Show me the way that you um, spend your money. Show me the things that you value in life. Show me the things that if you lost those things, don't tell me you're a family man when your job obviously competes with your, uh, like so your kids are constantly feeling like they're competing uh, with your job or your career. And don't tell me you're doing this when, when this just doesn't match up with the way that you uh, value things. Um, I look at your actions and your actions can speak louder than words. Uh, whatever people value is who they truly are. I mean, this is not unique to Jesus. This would be a, a common thought. This would translate to all kinds of business books. This would be uh, something that you've probably read somewhere else or gets a lot of press uh, elsewhere. But it, did, it, it is part of this Jesus wisdom ethic of, hey, the way of Jesus includes taking a real hard glance into how you do money. And then in a, in a, in a few verses then, um, he's going to jump into this idea of you cannot serve both God and mammon or stuff, um, money, but like extrapolated into several different things. Um, don't just be aware your allegiance kind of shines through in this way. Don't confuse yourself or, or convince yourself it's okay to be like half in here and half in here. You never want to be in that way. It's this idea of wholeness. Again, it comes down to devotion. Which one are you going to be devoted to? Because you're going to say yes to one, which means saying no to another one or no to one and yes to the other one. Um, don't, don't lie to yourself. Do this with all of you. Be aware of the wholeness of the whole nature of this sort of activity is what he's about to say. Knowing that that's the context and you've got this on each end of the bookends, that will help provide us, I think, an awareness of this odd text that kind of shows up in the middle. Because if you read this in isolation, I think you would read it to mean something else. But in this way, he's clearly talking about money. And he's clearly talking about our security, our sense of peace, our, our well-being, who we value ourselves to be in relation to our commodities and our stuff and our things and all of those things that we value that speak so much about us. All right. So here we go. Verse 22. This is our text for today. The eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is whole and generous. And I put in whole and generous because I think that's a better way of translating the word that's in there. Your version at home, uh, if you were reading NIV or ESV or whatever version translation of the Bible you have, it might say healthy. If your eye is healthy, then your whole body uh, will be uh, righteous or your whole, whole body will be light. That's a lot of times what it says is this idea of light. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is evil and greedy, uh, then your whole body will be darkened. Thus, if the light light that is in you is darkness. What darkness 
that is. You can imagine like if you just read this in isolation and didn't know he was talking about money here and money here, um, then this is like, I, I'm not sure, is he going back to that whole lust thing about looking lustfully at, at, at a woman or whatever? Or is this something else that's taking place here? What's happening in this way? Um, in the beginning, God created light and he created darkness or so the uh, origin story goes in Genesis uh, and their basic understanding of themselves in terms of creation. He didn't create the sun, which gives the light we see to help make sense of our surroundings until after he created the light. Um, For them, light existed before the sun existed. The sun didn't provide us with light. The sun came out when it was light. Sun was for warmth. It was created after the light. Again, light was present due to the presence of light itself, not the presence of the sun, um, which is mildly interesting, I guess, Brent, but what is, you know, that doesn't even make any sense. Um, That's not obviously how it works. I know that. You know that. We know that because of fifth grade science, right? But that's how they thought it worked. You have to remember that this is taken into a time and a context. We're trying to understand the language that he's using to pull from. He would speak in the way that they would understand something. He's leveraging a concept or a scientific construct that they had thought at that time to illustrate a life principle. And so for them, light and darkness were supreme. The sun was kind of a secondary thing to lightness and darkness. The sun was for warmth, operated independently from light. The presence of light allowed for life to occur. Without light, there would be no life. Therefore, light is equated with life. They would say phrases like this, the light that show up in scripture, by the way, the light of life or the living light life as it was referred to. Thanks to their living light, animated beings can now see. Light existed inside of you. You saw things because of the light inside of you, not because light illuminated something for you um, to see. Sight consisted of light emanating from the eyes of living beings. And we would say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I understand that. But there are some things that in the way that we say them don't make sense either. We would say something about in our modern day kind of vernacular about this, that blood equals life. You run out of blood, you run out of life, right? That blood is some sort of life force. But we all know based on, again, fifth grade science, blood is simply uh, oxygen messenger sending oxygen to our brain. Yes, if you run out of blood, you run out of life, but we don't actually equate we're not alive because of blood. It just is a part of our like whole system of being. Um, so I know that maybe the analogy breaks down a little bit, but as much as, as ridiculous as it sounds for them to say light is life and it emanates from the eyes or whatever, we kind of do something similar in our way. So Jesus is saying the eye is the lamp of the body. Um, he, uh, in that time and era that the scientific or the, the top thinkers of their day would sort of equate this. Jesus wasn't isolated is what I'm saying uh, in kind of making this or drawing this conclusion. Aristotle would say this, that sight is made from fire and hearing from air, that vision is fire. The eye emits light that has an active effect on the object on which its glance falls. Uh, Plutarch would say this, man, mo- man both experiences and produces many effects through his eyes. He is possessed and governed by either pleasure or displeasure exactly into proportion to what he sees. Yeah, but Brent, that's like not how it scientifically works. I know, but that's how they thought it worked at the time. And so Jesus is using that and leveraging this. He's trying to say, listen, in a certain way, the eye is a window to the soul. It has an effect on things. The way that you look at things affects things. If your eyes 
are healthy, or the word that he uses there, the Greek word is havlos, uh, or, or um, a, a better way of looking at that would be um, single-minded again. He's, he's talking about this wholeness nature. If, you're, if your eye, if what you see, if how you view the world, if how you look at others, which in effect is going to come into this idea of envy, if in the world of greed, you begin to see what other people have and you envy it, even though you may not do actively anything to engage in that way, you're still generous, but you're also generous while keeping an eye on what everybody else is doing, then you're not really doing it with your whole self. There's like this duplicitous nature inside of you. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm being generous. I'm saying, I'm saying that my life isn't, doesn't consist in a summation of all of my stuff, and yet I keep looking around to see what everybody else has. And if I'm pressed on it, I say, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm, I'm fine. But reality is, for him, when you are looking around, you're revealing something about you and about your core essence of being. If your generosity and your kindness comes from your whole sense of being, free from envy, free from greed, free from malice, free from duplicity and hypocrisy, free uh, from this idea, I've, I'm doing this because it looks good and not because I want to, then you can really begin to experience generosity that comes from a wholeness of self. That we, when we do things, we do it with all of our being. This is the most important part. Regardless of finances, Jesus is just calling you to be like, hey, if you say it, then believe it. Like at the core of your being, would what you say and what you, um, uh, and what you do match up with your motives? Um, that you would not do things for the optics of it, but like it would actually come from uh, an essence of your being in that way. It's all coming back to this idea of wholeness. I want you to be whole in everything that you do. And so that light that's coming out of you, if it's single-minded, if it's whole, then there's gonna be some light in you. There's life in you. Contrast that with the idea of if this isn't what takes place for you, then there's this evil eye. He, he leverages this concept that existed in this time that we really don't have like the words for or context for. In the ancient Mediter- Mediterranean world, the evil eye was the notion that certain individuals, animals, demons, or gods had the power of injuring or casting a spell on every object on which their glance fell. Um, if you made too much money, if you experienced too much success in business, if your kids went to private school, if you tried too often to reach above the caste that you were born into, if you tried to be something you're not, beware the evil eye. Beware other people looking at you going, I wonder how we got that much money. That's a really nice house. I wonder what he does for work. I wonder what she does in this way. That, that seems odd for her to dress like that. Where's she getting that? This idea of people looking at you and, and um, not just in, in an envious way, they, they literally believe, again, this culture, believe that when other people do that, it actually had a negative effect on your life. If you, if you live in such a way that flaunts things, people are going to look at you in this way and it's going to do something to you. 
And, and it, this plays out again in his, um, this, uh, the, his writing to the Galatian church. Paul later on would say uh, in writing to a group of Christians uh, in a letter where he, like most of his letters, praises them in one hand and then also corrects them in the other. Uh, and everybody loves to be praised and nobody likes to be corrected. No surprise there. Um, and he, he writes to them as part of this conversation um, and he basically addresses their concerns about his correction. They don't, nobody, again, nobody likes to be corrected. And he goes, oh, foolish Galatians, who has, in some translations, bewitched you? But another way of reading it would be, who has injured you with the evil eye? They would say, oh, Paul, you're looking at us and your corrections come because you're just jealous of us. And you're looking at us with this evil eye that projects things and causes bad things to occur for us. And he's saying, I didn't do this to you. Who's done this to you? Who's looked at you in that way? I'm not writing you out of a jealousy for you. I'm not correcting you because I'm envious of your position or your wealth or your status or where you live or the, you know, whatever, all of these things that come with this. That's not why I'm writing of correction to you. You did not shield your eyes from me and, and, and you did not spit in my presence. That was one of the ways that they would say to shun the evil eye. They would wear amulets around their neck that would have a picture of an eye to ward off the evil eye. They would spit and every, anytime somebody looked at them in this way. So Paul is talking about this in this Galatian things. It is they and not I who have given me the evil eye. In Galatians 4, 17 and 18, it's you. I'm not, I'm not giving you the evil eye. You fighting back against me. You keep challenging my claim to apostleship. You've given, you're looking at me in this way, trying to cause me harm in this way. Verse 23, back to Jesus's, he's given us the options here. You can use your eyes for good and you can be full of light and, and operating in a sense of wholeness, or you can succumb to this evil eye. And as you're giving, constantly be looking around and not doing it with a sense of wholeness. And then he goes, but if your eye is evil and greedy, then your whole body will be darkened. Uh, thus, if the light that is in you is darkness, what darkness that is. That what dark, oh, what darkness that is. That we fail to sometimes understand the darkness that is involved in that. The self-deception that takes place in this. We tend, this is a reality of life. This is a great takeaway from this text. And this actually plays well, even if you're not really religious uh, in this way. We tend to underestimate the danger of living duplicitously. We tend to underestimate it. Jesus is trying to highlight it and say, even when you are from the outsider perspective, external perspective, doing good things, when you do it from a sense of hypocrisy, when you do it from a sense of like this double standard for yourself, when you are living duplicity, we, we downplay the damaging effects on those types of things. We don't really understand what that's doing to us, what's that, what that is sowing in our lives that will eventually be reaped in unforeseen consequences uh, in this way. A uh, quick example in terms of like in our world that we're currently living in. Like we've always been anti-hypocrisy, um, right? I mean, that's been one of the major critiques of the church. Everybody finger points and everybody says, you say this, but you do this. I mean, it, it lands in our political realm. It probably operates in your workplace environment. And we don't like when people give us rules that they themselves are not willing to follow or do. Uh, we don't like when people say this, but then they're not, you know, they say that they're generous, but there's always strings attached. Um, they say that they value this, you know, our, you know, family time together, but then they just cancel on, on everything. And, and, and there's, uh, there's all kinds of things that we look at in people's lives and we'd be like, your hypocrisy is, uh, and, and, and we, here's what else we know it. Not only are we hurt a lot by it, 
but we, f- we can't believe that they don't see it in themselves. And it's almost that that self-deception is as painful as what they've done to us and the injury that they've caused us. But the fact that they don't think that they've done anything wrong, you're like, I just don't even know how to deal with you in that way, right? So, so we've always been uh, pretty against hypocrisy in that way which is showing up here. Less than two weeks ago, an epidemiologist who led the team at Imperial College London that produced one of the computer-modeled researches that led to Boris Johnson finally locking down Britain had been uh, one of the more vocal people calling for and getting listened to in in terms of immediate lockdowns and stay-home, stay-safe policies uh, in the UK. And when news came out on the same day that he publicly lobbied on TV for people to practice extreme lockdown measure, he invited his mistress over to his house, a married woman who lives with her husband and their children in another home. And when one of the local papers ran the story, he immediately found himself in the unfortunate position of having to resign his position in terms of being on the lead team uh, for that and being a voice for government stuff because you can't speak with authority on rules that you're unwilling to follow yourself. It doesn't look very good regardless of where you vote and how you vote and who you voted for. Both sides of the party go, hey, that's not going to work. It's not going to fly. You've lost your moral footing. Nobody's going to listen to you anymore. You propose rules on other people you're unwilling to follow yourselves and people eventually dismiss you. Or in this case, maybe you dismiss yourself. And right now, more than maybe usual, I feel like we're hyper aware of duplicity. We find ourselves in an elevated state of opinions. Everybody's got an opinion about everything. Apparently, everybody's really good at epidemiology. I had no idea. You guys are so good. It's amazing. And research and, oh, have you watched this? And have you read this? And don't you know? Dot, dot, dot. And regardless of what you believe, at least believe it with your whole self because Jesus says and considers that the best way to live your life. And he focused is it again on financial stuff and on how you handle money because it reveals so much about your true allegiances and, and, and goes into all of that. But it's just this whole sense of wholeness in this way. Don't say you're about it, but then not actually prove that in the way that you value your stuff. That speaks more than this. And in this area specifically, if you're going to be kind and generous, go fully in on that. Watch out for halfway. You don't want to be there. It's dark there. It's darker than you think And oh, what darkness that is. So maybe that's something that we can learn about life moving forward. Maybe we can learn during this crisis when hypocrisy is so rampant and so obvious in so many different places, when Jesus says, yes, but take into account your personal finances in this way and realize for yourself, um, you've been saying family's important, but you've never, you, um, Your kids would not know that based on the way that you've prioritized finances. I have to do this. This is what work is calling for me to do. Or, or, uh, and so I I could go so many different areas in this. Maybe when we see the hypocrisy hypocrisy of others that is so obvious and so frustrating, maybe we can see that we're so prone to the exact same thing. And maybe if we fully understand the level of darkness involved in that, if we took Jesus at his word and saying, oh, what darkness that is. May we do something different. May we be the type of people who live in a way that overcomes that concept and that mindset of thinking and follow in instead in the way of Jesus. Here's the way that Jesus would do it. 